I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Kilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, Bert, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Ava, Bob, The West Bank Robbery Podcast, Jamie, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Ryan, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax News listeners. On this edition of the program, political blogger Ettinger Mentum joins us to discuss his recent piece, The President Who Stood Up to Israel and Won, George Bush, AIPAC, and the Proven Folly of Unconditional Aid. We'll be discussing how George H.W. Bush checkmated the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee and the Likud Party of Israel during his presidency, and the lessons that can be learned from it today. All that and much more on this edition of Parallax Views. A note that there is a reference to an alleged comment by President George H.W. Bush's U.S. Secretary of State James Baker that, uh, well, it, it, it involves explicit language, so uh, just keep that in mind that there is explicit language in this episode. And with that being said, let's get right to the conversation with Ettinger Mentum. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I'm really happy I could get on. Thank you, Noah Colwyn. Uh, our guest is a blogger, Ettinger Mentum, uh, otherwise known as Josh. And he mm-hmm. had a really interesting piece that came out on November 4th, 2023, entitled The President Who Stood Up to Israel and Won, George Bush, APAC, and the Proven Folly of Unconditional Aid. How are you doing, Josh? Yeah, so this is the most recent article I've written. I wrote about four days ago. Um, it goes over um, like uh, George Bush's, um, George H.W. Bush's policy towards Israel during his presidency, the conflicts he had with them, and the stance that he took, which was far more confrontational than any president we've really seen approach Israel like do since. 
and how that led to a lot of results and changes in Israeli politics that were very positive that um, have not been done since and how that um, has led to a lot of the failures and the rise of extremism and the dominance of Netanyahu that we've seen in the country um, since then that have led directly to the current conflict. And it shows that there, at any moment, any president can have another path forward. So if you could, can you set the scene for us uh, with regards to what was happening uh, when uh, Bush the Elder, uh, George H.W. Bush, got into office? Because it seemed like a time of, uh, I guess, new possibilities. You know, this when we got the famous uh, Bush speech about, you know, uh, it's a new world order, right? Yeah. So uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about the time and setting and what came about because of that. Yeah. So politically, both countries, the U.S. and Israel, had um, uh, um, like big conservative realignments um, about a decade prior to when Bush took office. Israel, it was the election of uh, Likud and the Republicans, it was the election of Ronald Reagan in 1980. Um, so at this point, um, the U.S. is um, increasing in global influence uh, with the fall of the like the declining power of the Soviet Union and that's like the major thing that occurs over Bush's uh, tenure. And he really has like the world is kind of putty in his hands at that point. Um, like I write, um, like few presidents have had his aims as grandiose as Bush has, and even fewer has had the capacity to, to act on those aims. Um, he was very popular for much of his presidency. A lot of that was a result of the successful desert storm mission and the economy being pretty good until the very end. Um, and he had a lot he had very lofty priorities. Uh, basically, he wanted to craft a U.S.-dominated new world order, as he called it. And the main problem for him at this point was the Middle East, which was very important for the U.S. in terms of energy supplies, where the U.S. had created a bunch of strong relationships with countries in the region like Saudi Arabia um, and Kuwait, obviously, um, that were aimed at creating a steady supply of oil to the, for them. It was to prevent a sudden energy crisis of the 70s, which was economically and politically devastating um, for like both the U.S. economy and the parties who were in power at the time. But at the same time, the U.S. is very closely aligned with Israel, which is the main driver of instability in the region, um, like constantly really causing problems, uh, leading to extremism in a lot of Muslim countries, very consistent warfare, constantly hurting the U.S.'s relations with countries that it could otherwise be friendly with. Um, so they face this kind of conundrum where they have this commitment to Israel and a lot of problems that are created by it in this region that is seen as very important. So very early on, Bush and his Secretary of State, James Baker, who's this like, these are both like very like kind of deep state, like um, uh, very like kind of killers, not very like obviously very right wing. These aren't like peaceniks or leftists in any way, but they look at the situation and their desire to create this kind of sustainable sort of uh, kind of balance of power. And they see that what Israel is doing is causing a lot of problems, specifically the settlements that um, the Israeli government is backing to the hilt at this point. In, in and, the West Bank, right? Yeah, or... in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip at that time, both under Israeli occupation. So they meet in 1989, uh, Shamir, Yitzhak Shamir, the Israeli prime minister, who is this very far right Likud leader, former member of uh, Lehi, who, which was a ter Jewish terror cell, a very strange group led by Abraham Stern that tried to ally with the Nazis at one point, actually. 
Um, he's this very far right figure, huge, huge supporter of the settlements, has never met with Arabs, has been involved in this huge, uh, a bunch of conflicts with them. And uh, so they meet in the White House and Bush tells them that they have to stop the settlements. They have to do a settlement freeze or a huge curtailment of them. And Shamir says that, oh, that shouldn't be a problem. And Bush and Baker think, oh, he just caved. He's not going to expand the settlements anymore. Uh, things are good. But what Shamir was actually saying was that it shouldn't be a problem for the United States. They shouldn't be objecting to his policy and that they should just be able to do whatever they want. And he doesn't clarify this. So he announces two weeks later um, that they're expanding settlements and Bush feels completely blindsided and lied to and he never forgives him. Real quick, I want to note, uh, you know, Shamir himself at that time was the leader of the Likud party, which we'll come back yeah. to that because, you know, Netanyahu, the leader of the Likud party. Uh, but how did Bush end up dealing uh, with this problem? And then maybe we could talk a little bit about James Baker because he becomes uh, a little bit controversial and mm -hmm. there's some misstatements uh, made about yeah. what he had to say about all of this. But we'll get into that. Yeah. So Baker is his point man from the beginning on this. So strike back against Shamir breaking his promise from Bush's perspective. He sends Baker to Secretary of State, former uh, chief of staff, I think, of the Reagan White House, like this like very close personal friend of Bush, like a high level guy. He sends him to speak at APAC's policy conference. And this is usually just a place for uh, politicians to talk about how much they love Israel. And um, but uh, Baker uh, goes there. And he um, like like he obviously says the stuff about the Palestinians and how they need to recognize Israel and not do any more violence. He also like tells the Israelis and the APAC supporters there they need to give up on like creating a greater Israel. They need to force for annexation, stop settlements, and reach out to the Palestinians. And this enrages APAC and a lot of the yeah, he's of the going into their backyard telling them this. Wow. Yeah, it was like really like seen as a huge like shift, like a big message that the Reagan years are over. We're taking a different perspective. And uh, this pisses them off a lot. They don't like that he's standing up against them. Uh, they don't like that he's taking what Palestinians say at face value. So a young deputy foreign minister by the name of Benjamin Netanyahu um, gets pissed at him. And about a year later, he said, it, it is astonishing that a superpower like the United States which is supposed to be a symbol of political fairness and international honesty, is building his policy on a foundation of distortion and lies. And Baker gets pissed off by this, and he bans Netanyahu from visiting the State Department. So it, this is very interesting. You know, he's basically saying, you know, your vision of uh, a greater Israel is unrealistic, and yeah. this causes a lot of issues. And it eventually, I, this is a little bit of a sidebar, but it eventually leads to this uh, misquote that we get uh -huh. um, in which uh, Baker is alleged to have said, fuck the Jews, they don't vote for us anyways. And it comes out later that that's not yeah. what he said at all, uh, yeah. at least the, in my understanding. This is a very complicated story, but supposedly after the Gulf War in the White House in 1991, and they're talking about some controversial policy and somebody says, oh, AIPAC won't like that. And Baker says, uh, fuck them, we, they don't vote for us anyway. And this is a reference to how uh, Dukakis in 1988 um, won, I think, 65 percent of the Jewish vote are like APAC supported Dukakis are um, like it's he was it's kind of a mixture between uh, talking about the Jewish vote as a block and talking about APAC as a political organization. I can't say for specific like specifically about how um, supportive uh, APAC was of Dukakis over Bush, but he was pretty clearly referring to um, 
APAC there, like when he said fuck him, because it was just brought up in the conversation. But what happens is that he has an enemy in the administration, uh, Jack Kemp, who's the Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, who leaks this quote out to um, former New York City Mayor Ed Koch, who is um, coach, um, I don't know which one is uh, right there, um, who is a tabloid writer at that point. And he reports, I think, like in the New York Post or some other tabloid media, he says, uh, James Baker says, fuck the Jews. And that like completely cripples Baker. He it makes it much harder for him to deal with the situation the way he used to, where he could really just kind of uh, say whatever position he wanted. Yeah, I was going to add too. So I think the the actual quote was, fuck them, they don't vote for us anyways. Yeah, no, he was. they were probably talking about the electoral politics, which is an important like factor here, because of, unlike um, Clinton or Carter, they didn't rely on the Jewish vote to get elected. They never won it. Um, they were clearly never going to win it. So uh, that was a pressure on uh, the Bush administration, that, and they didn't have any plans to, unlike uh, Bush Jr. or Trump, who both like really tried to win over the Jewish vote unsuccessfully. Um, so they don't feel as pressured like electorally on this. At this point, Bush is incredibly popular. He has a 90%, 70% approval rating. People think he's going to win re-election on a landslide. So he's thinking in terms of what he's going to be doing in his second term, how he can set up these big overarching structures, how he can like win his legacy. And that obviously doesn't come to pass. But his perspective is far more long term and uh, far less constrained by political realities than uh, most presidents are at really any point, like at least for the last 50 years. Do you want to talk a little bit about uh, the young Benjamin Netanyahu and uh, yeah. So it's like I kind of wanted to avoid putting him in here because it looks kind of cheap. Like, oh, look, it's this young foreign minister who um, with the who goes by the name of Benjamin Netanyahu. I'm just casually dropping this in here. Isn't that interesting? And I wanted to avoid that because that like was just it felt kind of lame. But then you read like the story of what's like this history here. And he shows up everywhere. It's not like it's a question of like, oh, he's just like this minor bit player who's involved in this. He was specifically got his political start here because um, under the, like he was a deputy foreign minister and the foreign minister above him, the actual guy with the job of running the foreign ministry was um, more in favor of negotiations and working with Bush. So Shamir is pissed at him. He doesn't want to fire him and make cause some embarrassment, but he sidelines his um, uh, uh, foreign minister. I'm going to have to... Um, yeah, David Levy, um, who's a, a future opponent of Netanyahu, um, he sidelines him in favor of uh, Netanyahu, giving him more publicity and support and making him kind of his point man on this ongoing dispute with the Bush administration. So Netanyahu is brought up a lot by um, several Bush cabinet officials as a guy they fucking hate. They think he's this arrogant grandstander, this like he just is so full of himself, obviously ambitious. Just very glib, outlandishly yeah. ambitious. Yeah, Robert Gates, a future CIA director, took offense to his glibness, criticisms of U.S. policy, arrogance, and outlandish ambition, uh, banned him from visiting the White House itself. That's not, but he, that's not anybody quoting him. He wrote this in his own autobiography. Like, he, like, they hated this guy. They thought he was a total prick. But he was a smaller part of a larger government, obviously. He doesn't represent Israel at this point. So they're mostly just like they get into this kind of standoff. They're pissed at Israel. Israel's pissed at them. And they mostly kind of let the issue fester for a couple of years. Um, Baker, after the administration is 
kicked out of office, gets criticized for this. It's seen as one of his big failures as Secretary of State. Um, so this isn't an issue really until the first Gulf War, uh, which was obviously the defining crisis of the Bush administration, uh, which was a massive political and military success. It was the defining like his signature decision that he made as president. And it was very popular, obviously went very well. Uh, and they decided that like thinking in their long term kind of grandiose world visions, uh, that it won't be a complete victory unless they can create some kind of long term settlement that will assure it will never happen again. Uh, so they want to meet with all the Arab countries in the region to hammer out this kind of regional order to contain Iraq and keep a steady supply of oil because um, the Kuwait invasion causes the largest oil price shock, shock in history. Like they make it about like this question of sovereignty and self-determination, but the question of Saddam Hussein taking over those oil fields caused massive, like it was a huge economic problem uh, with international oil markets. And they want to prevent this kind of shock from ever happening because people were willing to stand with him the first time when it's seen as this unexpected, like, act of aggression. But later on, if it happens a second time, people, it's not going to go as favorably and they, he might not get as much support for second war. So he goes to the, he, he and Baker thinking about the Middle East and they realize very quickly, we are not going to come to any long-term settlement unless the Israeli-Palestinian issue is at least being dealt with. There has to be at least a sense that there's some path forward here and we can't look like total toadies for the Israelis. So they plan out this conference um, in Madrid um, uh, where the Israelis and the Arabs would meet together in a big regional meeting for the first time. There would even be Palestinian representatives coming as part of the Jordanian delegation. Big, like, precedent-breaking moment. Uh, the Israelis, prior to that point, had never met with the Palestinians. They had, Their whole narrative was calling them unrepentant terrorists. And uh, Shamir, supposedly, according to this one reporting I read, it's a little mixed up here because, like, some of them talk about how his attendance was kind of a fait accompli, and that he they wanted to go there, uh, and others say that he was opposed to um, negotiations and meeting with the Arabs. But anyways, um, Shamir is very opposite on this, and he's not willing to work with this thing that Israel considers very necessary for negotiations to succeed, which is a settlement freeze. So they bring back the request for a settlement freeze, and Israel obviously doesn't listen to them. So Bush starts playing hardball with another international development, which is the fall of the Soviet Union which leads and is expected to lead to a massive influx of immigration into Israel of for former Soviet Jews. And Israel's economy is very small and not doing very well at this point. They, they can't afford to um, take all these guys in without taking out massive loans on the international market, which could cripple them financially. It would be a huge uh, economic um, like increase in debt. So they asked the U.S. to give them $10 billion in loan guarantees to bring these guys in. They're, they need the U.S. to do this. They can't take this kind of money out at international market rates. And Bush says, OK, we'll give you the money, but you have to promise not to put these people, not to resettle these people in the West Bank or Gaza or the Golan Heights. And you have to do a settlement freeze. So he's actually asking them for concessions for U.S. aid. This at this point had never been done before. If uh, this level of negotiations, like in terms of making an official request, like they had asked for previous stuff on previous packages before, but it was always through like a handshake agreement. They didn't like really uh, have any enforcement mechanisms, and um, this is a huge like break from precedent. This is like his moment where he's like 
taking the options that are available to him, and he's pushing Israel in the direction that he wants them to go, rather than the direction that Israel would like to go, like for themselves. So, the 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 Shamira government is is pretty furious about all of this, but yeah, this hardball tactic. I mean, it, it it's looking like it's going to work, and I guess the uh, pro-Israel lobby, you know, these APAC officials end up trying to fight back uh yeah. Congress. Can so you they speak work to that? With the, they work with the Israelis. This is the next part of the story. They they work directly with the Israelis here, and they're like, fuck Bush, we hate Bush. Bush is a lost cause. Uh, this guy hates Israel or whatever. He's anti-Semitic. We don't like him. We're going to get this through Congress, and we're going to get this done exactly how we want, and Bush is going to be totally overwhelmed by us. He's either going to be forced to sign. He's going to be forced to sign it, and we're going to get all the money, no questions asked, no conditions immediately. So they send a thousand lobbyists to Washington, and they're like extremely confident. James Baker at this point is like unable to really advocate for it on Bush's behalf because he's politically wounded after the Ed uh, uh, coach uh, incorrectly quotes him. So Bush himself, like I left it a month ago before the conference, gives a press conference about his position on this, and his position is. Uh, at the very least, we have to um, have a hold on aid um, for 120 days on considering this package until after the Madrid conference and into next year. And this is like he presents this like it's this very kind of uh, like kind of uh, not like very simple request. But it is a major kind of um, uh, like um, stand that he's taking because by pushing the aid consideration to be after the Madrid conference, Israel loses its leverage by saying, do what we want or we won't show up and we'll embarrass you. Uh, and it puts them in a much harder position to, to um, go against Bush's wishes. And uh, he gives a press conference where he like plays a bunch of different angles. Um, you can like the specific stuff you can read about in the article here. And it works extremely well. He has um, like their polling that happens after his conference that 86% of people agree with his call for a delay APAC backs down. Israel goes to negotiations. Um, there's huge splits in the Jewish community that lead to APAC losing uh, like its kind of uh, dominant position on Israel advocacy organizations. To this day, they, re- they refer to it as a day that lives in infamy. Like that's what APAC calls it. It was a catastrophe for them. And like you said, I mean, APAC put a lot of effort in the lead up to this, you know, saying Bush was monomaniacally anti-Israel. And basically what Bush did was to say, hey, you you know, these peace talks can't be disrupted and we need to uh, delay congressional consideration of the loans for at least 120 days. And this Mm -hmm. is all in the interest of peace. He kind of framed it in a way that I'm not sure the pro-Israel lobby types expected him to frame it. No, no. He was saying, I'm working in Israel's interest more than you are. You guys are being reckless. You're not thinking about it. I'm the experienced, uh, popular foreign policy expert president. You guys don't know what you're doing. You guys are trying to usurp my authority. Uh, He cast himself, as you put it, as the underdog. Yeah. He was like, oh, they have a thousand lobbyists and I'm the only person who's defending my position. Uh, so th- like at the same time, he's making these massive threats to the most powerful lobbying organization, one of the most powerful lobbying organizations in Washington. It's so uh, it was extremely effective watching it kind of like maybe feel like, oh, this is kind of what a president kind of in full control of their faculties. It looks like on this kind of issue, because we haven't seen that in a while. Uh, but it was it was it was a it was a very impressive like kind of a thing he pulled off there. 
And the larger impact of this is that it caused a massive political change in Israel, where um, Likud back then and to this day, um, part of their like kind of uh, power comes from the idea like we can do whatever we want and the U.S. won't do anything about it. We get infinite aid. We're foreign policy security experts. Um, we'll just do whatever we want. The U.S. will give us money no matter what. Uh, so there's no reason to do the peace talks. And that was that's what kind of Keith Netanyahu in power to this moment. And it was part of why they were kind of so undefeatable. Even back in the 80s, they had the reputation as a security party. But at this point, there are real consequences for their intransigence. There is actually like real world issues that people are seeing in real time with like how um, much like Shamir not like giving Bush any daylight is costing them. It's causing these issues with their most important ally. So this gives a major advantage to the peace camp in Israel um, that uh, nobody like like that hasn't been really seen before or since. Or um, Likud for the first time in like I think it was 15 years loses power decisively. They lose control, and Yitzhak Rabin, who is like not really like a pe- like a very peaceful person, he had a like he, a very, listen. He's not. Yeah. He may not be a peacenik, Rabin, yeah. and I, I agree with that. But I mean, we always have to remember. I mean, I think we were closer to some type of of deal when Rabin was in power, and of course, yeah, who kills he was Rabin. Their, you know, yeah, I mean, it's Netanyahu's um, political allies. Uh, yeah, Rabin was um, kind of similar to Bush in that he was very ruthlessly self-interested. He cared far more about the self, like the concrete, realist, real politic um, kind of interests of his country uh, than he did about some ideological vision of a greater Israel. That was the Likud perspective. They cared more about settlements than security. Uh, Rabin is, it's kind of fascinating reading these stories about him. He's this classic military person, not very charismatic not very personable or great at small talk, but he's relentlessly obsessed with keeping Israel secure. He's a hardline Zionist in that sense, and he takes it very seriously. And from his perspective, the only way they can have long-term security is to come to a long-term settlement with the Palestinians. And he's correct if you've seen what's happened in the past couple of decades. You can't say they've been very safe right now have under the current circumstances. And uh Rabin and Bush are really on the same page. They have kind of a bromance going on. It's under Rabin after he gets elected that Bush finally lets them have the loans. Um, Rabin doesn't even really give into all of Bush's demands, but he's like, you know, I like you. You're on the right track. Um, we'll give you kind of like a kind of a mulligan here, like just a show of good faith. Uh, so they're both like getting along very well. There's a lot of like um, bakers talking about like, wow, once we get to our second term, we're really going to solve this whole issue once and for all. But then uh, Bush loses. And the guy who replaces him is Clinton, who is a very hardcore APAC ally. He runs on Bush being anti-Semitic over his positions on Israel. Um, there's this infamous recording of where the APAC, like some high-level guy there, is talking about like, oh, we know all of Bush's, but Clinton's friends were making were making up all of his his administration. That he has to walk back. It makes him look like they control the government. And he's like, oh, I was capping. That wasn't actually true. I was just like bluffing and he has to resign. But it, there was a tremendous degree of influence that APAC had um, on the Clinton campaign and his government. They were very closely aligned. So then when uh, Clinton takes power, there's not anybody really pushing Israel like to be like take the negotiation seriously. That's not a problem when someone like Rabin is in power because he cares about the, like creating a, like the peace process in and of itself. But it hurts him politically because the Israelis start realizing, oh, what's the point of this if the Americans are going to support us no matter what? 
And then Rabin dies, and he's replaced by Netanyahu, whose whole like kind of thing not, here uh, is real that we, quick. Not not yeah. just dies, but he's, he's assassinated. assassinated by Yigal Amir, one of the most right wing people imaginable. Yeah, yeah, he's assassinated by this right wing uh, Arab Israeli who um, uh, is like arguably goaded on by Netanyahu's whose rhetoric. He's to this day he's still unrepentant. He gets assassinated by the Israeli right over the peace talks. In the next election, there's no pressure on the U.S. like like oh you should probably vote for a guy who's going to work with us or uh, something will happen like we won't give you loans or aid or whatever. So there's no pressure on Israel to get its act together. And then Netanyahu wins by a single percentage point, thirty thousand votes. And uh, if he loses that election, uh, you very well could have seen a different result of the peace process because you don't have some like guy like him who's freezing it for four years. Then by the time Ehud Barak comes into power, it, the process is in a totally different situation. There's a lot of goodwill that's been lost. So what's the lesson that needs to be learned from the H.W. Bush-Israel uh, affair? Because I know what people are saying right now. They're saying, well, it sounds like you know Bush's play didn't really uh, work out for him in the end. He, he uh, lost the election. How do you respond over, to people? It wasn't over this issue. Israel was actually one of the few issues, and this was noted at the time, and people were confused why Clinton was running against him so strongly. Um, Israel was one of the best issues that he pulled on. Everybody approved of his policies on Israel. His um, Madrid conference was seen as a massive success. It was a big vindication of his experience and his whole brand as um, experienced leadership for America's future or whatever. Israel was his best polling issue. It probably hurt him with Jews, like who cared the most about it. But um, overall, people were very happy with how he was dealing with it. He lost because everything else, everybody soured on everything, other aspect of his presidency. But that was in spite of how much people liked his Israel policies, not because of it. So, um, real quick, he actually yeah. won one of the states that had yeah. most heavily uh, yeah. populated by American Jewish people, which yeah. was Florida. Yeah. So, like, um, if you look at the states that are most populated by Jewish people, it's New York, it's Florida, maybe New Jersey. New York was a blue state. He lost it in 1988. He was never going to win it, probably. Florida was a state that he won, albeit very narrowly, with a reduced margin uh, compared to 1988. But he he won it. He got all the electoral votes, winner take all. Uh, the one state you can say it maybe cost him was New Jersey, which was a swing state that year. And there is a Jewish population there that's pretty large. Maybe he lost there. Lost like by 200 electoral votes, it didn't make the difference there. You could probably say that the overall kind of positive reverberations of people approving of his policy on Israel won him a lot more votes than he lost. But the simple narrative here is always very easy to side with. Um, APAC because they have all the money and they pressure anybody to just go their way. Um, is that oh, Bush lost and he stood against Israel. Um, you need to stand with Israel to win. Um, so that's the narrative that's been remembered. And ever since then, Republican presidents have been too terrified to they obviously never like did this for like any reason other than selfish reasons. When you get very realist, um, confident Bush administration people out of there, they just go with the right wing. Democrats are still like following in the footsteps of the Clinton people who are just totally pro-Israel toadies. And you don't have any progress or any pressure being put towards Israel to this day, basically. In that regard, I mean, you know, you said earlier that Bush framed it as actually I'm I'm helping I'm trying to help Israel out. And it's these APAC types that are, uh, you know, actually hurting the process. Mm -hmm. I, I think there may be some truth to that when we look at how things have panned out in a way. Uh, these extreme like could 
figures have made Israel less safe. Uh, undoubtedly, it's not even a question. Uh, they um, they had this concept where they could have their cake and eat it too on this issue, um, where um, they would get the oppressed Palestinians and settle as much as they want and keep U.S. support and be friends with the Arabs all at the same time. And that was a, that was a compelling pitch. It looked like actually it might be going the way they thought it would for a moment there, but it was a it never was that case, and they got it got proven in the most like catastrophic possible way. And it does show that, like the way that people try to frame this is like, oh, it's like 9-11. They got attacked by these hateful people. There's nothing they could have done about it. They just need to be tough now and defeat Hamas. This has been decades in the making. They chose to go down this road. There was pressure from the U.S., pressure from their own populace to deal with this issue on a long-term basis instead of kicking the can down the road forever. And they chose not to. And the consequences of that, of that that what happening be the consequences of that political decision should be how this entire conflict is understood. There were just a few more things I wanted to go over, and this goes beyond the confines of the piece uh, that you wrote that we've been talking about, about H.W. Bush. But, you know, it's interesting when you look at the history of Netanyahu and the Likud party uh, and, and just the issues with Israel in general uh, and, and its relationship with the U.S. I mean, uh, you know, during the Clinton years, we had Robert Malley, uh, who was involved in the Camp David uh, summit. And he is yeah. uh, he famously said in, I believe it was the New York Book of Reviews, that it's kind of a myth that it was all Arafat's fault. Yeah, uh, for the Malley uh, is very interesting. He's actually Biden's point man on uh, Iran right now. And he's arguably one of the only people in the administration focused on making progress there. But I've uh, had people say that like um, they're just trying to humiliate him, like they're or they're mad at him over that, so they're giving him a white elephant position that he can't possibly win with. But yeah, Mali um, is very interesting there, um, and like the like the U.S. Um, could have gotten Israel to yes on a number of occasions, like how Bush was able to. But um, like in like you talk about the Camp David Accord, which is always brought up by Zionists as proof positive that Palestinians don't want peace. Uh, but it, Barack didn't give them a number of major concessions that they could have. He could have been forced into giving. The um, the president there said, "Like, look, you have to care more about um, creating a solution here than keeping all your priorities in order. Uh, we're gonna like push you on that." And Clinton was elected not to do that. He ultimately, didn't do it, and it ended in predictably in disaster. Yeah, and what I was going to say about Mali uh, that is interesting is he, he was very adamant that it's not all Arafat's fault. Um, and then, mm -hmm. I mean, I think if you go up to the Obama administration, uh, you know, I don't think Obama and Netanyahu had the greatest relationship. No, they hated each other. But um, Obama, like, there was at that point of his presidency, he was not nearly as strong as Bush was. He didn't have the political capital. He didn't have a Congress that could have supported him. Um, he didn't have the popularity. His approval rating was like 45%, not 70%. And he uh, didn't really have the experience or the instincts or the kind of uh, like sense of self-confidence to really go after the issue like in full force. He was always trying. I think he was concerned with the settlements. He told that he yeah, you got to stop the settlements. Yeah. yeah, but he never actually pushed him on it like Bush did. He never actually said, you have to stop the settlements. Or he just said, look, it's in your best interest to stop the settlements. And Netanyahu said, well, are you going to do anything about it? And he basically called his bluff, and Obama said no. He's like, then it's not in our best interest to stop the settlements. And uh, like nothing got done, and Obama was kind of embarrassed there. 
Uh, and you can blame that on Netanyahu all you want. The fact that he, Netanyahu has been so politically successful is because the U.S., including Obama's own administration, which was in power at the time Netanyahu won the election, has refused to pressure Israel or demonstrate that there will be any consequences to how arrogant they become. So, like, Obama can't really just say that he was being, like, he was being treated unfairly there. He kind of made his bed there, too. There were, like, four Israeli elections, um, all one by Netanyahu under his presidency. If you can go for a little bit longer, uh, I-, I wanted to talk about these two other articles and some issues that come up with them. So you wrote uh, Israeli's Tet Moment on October 10th, and then you mm-hmm. wrote Israel's Government of Psychopaths. Uh, very strong words, but you know, looking at the Netanyahu regime, it's hard not to say that you're on point with that. So yeah. I-, I wanted to talk a little bit more about Netanyahu because a lot of people will say to me, well, Netanyahu is – is sort of caught in a trap due to the the people he got involved with, like Bezalel Smotrich of the Religious Zionism Party, uh, or um, Itamar Ben Giver of uh, Yehudit Otsma. But by all accounts, it seems like even if they weren't around, uh, Netanyahu has extreme positions, and the Likud Party yeah. in general, even though it's seen as a center right party, I would say is much farther to the right than a lot of Americans want to admit. No, it's a straight up conservative party. The center right there is the opposition at this point because. There's no point of the left in Israel if you're not if there's never any consequences towards being jingoistic. What's the point of voting for labor if the U.S. isn't pushing you to have any settlements? You're just doing settlements for the sake of settlements. Like I mean, settlements in terms of like a peace deal, not in terms of like the actual settlements of the West Bank. Uh, the situation for Netanyahu right now is um, uh, well, he's under active criminal prosecution, and most of the members of the opposition might have to be in jail. The far right members of uh, the Knesset are the only ones arguably keeping him out of prison. So um, he he made this move where he's like, oh, we made this unity government with um, uh, um, uh, Benny Gantz, where this is a government for all Israelis. Uh, we're not partisan anymore. But Benny Gantz isn't going to vote for him on uh, like judicial reform stuff, even if he is technically in government. Uh, so Netanyahu relies on these openly genocidal members of his party, like these insane, like ultranationalists and theocrats and just people who just blatantly hate Arabs, worship like mass shooters, just um, these commonly described. You're, you're not, really, by the way, just yeah. so my listeners know, you were not exaggerating. Itamar Ben Giver is reported to have a picture of Baruch Goldstein, a mass murderer, uh, on his wall. You yeah, know, a, gi- a gigantic it, mural of him. It wasn't even a mural of him. It was a mural of the shooting. Behind the pi- the picture of Goldstein was the mosque that Goldstein shot up, and it had some Hebrew inscription that like sort of commemorated it. He's not even like saying, "Oh, this guy was great." Besides the shooting, he's saying this guy was awesome because the shooting that he did. I approve of him killing thirty people. Like it's just these people. Like he worked for a party that wanted to enslave Arabs. This is these. Like it's not any exaggeration here. These people are like, like just like you. You could. It would be. It's not exaggeration to say that they're genocidal. It's the way they they carry themselves, and they are basically running the Israeli government because Netanyahu depends on them. And that is the crucial concept text in how you have to understand every decision that they make. It's not just a question of self defense. The people like constantly bring up like it's the only consideration here. They have these larger ideological goals that are incredibly violent and racist that should like it. You can't pretend that this is a normal country is what I'm saying. 
do you think then that uh, assuming these figures weren't around the Ben Geevers, the Smotriches, uh, do you think that, that, uh, Netanyahu would be more restrained because I'm, I'm hesitant to say that myself just because I feel like that's almost letting Netanyahu off the hook. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it's letting him off the hook. There's not as much like daylight, like there's not a ton of daylight between um, his positions and their positions. Uh, but like, he kind of can turn it off. Like he can have moments where it's like, oh, this isn't the moment for me to pursue my dream of a greater Israel where all the Arabs are kicked out. Um, I need to kind of like, this is a moment for reputation managing. Smutrik and Ben Gavir, like there's no off switch for them. They're constantly like like on game for genocide. So if like Danyaki tries to make pragmatic decisions, even to the limited extent that he can, they're going to be the ones pushing back against that. Uh, so it's not like he like would be pushing for peace in a different universe. It's primarily that like these people who like are constantly on this extreme position 24 seven are the ones determining policy there. In regards to October 7th, uh, what do you, what's your analysis of the October 7th attack? Yeah. Well, it all leads directly into this, like the political history that I was, I've been talking about like um, throughout this where um uh, sorry, um, where you have this political culture in Israel where they feel like they can act with absolute impunity, where the right is completely empowered. They have this, like, they don't think they need to come to a long-term deal because nobody since Bush has really pressed them on it. So they set up this regime of uh, basically, like, um, uh, where the occupation of Palestine is managed through high-tech weaponry and like limited involvement, and it's just this permanent siege that doesn't really constrain them too much, and they get all the benefits and none of the um, consequences. Um, and that kind of perception of the the war of like how they would manage it is completely shattered by um, um, the attacks. It proves that they did not have the situation under control. And it's not like me, like, like kind of making conjecture here that they thought they could manage this. Uh, Netanyahu is literally like on tape recorded saying, oh, we'll fight them every now and again, but we control the height of the flames. We control how bad this goes uh, if like it's not actually a serious threat. And he just got proven that he does not control the height of the flames. So the entire political culture of the country there is in a state of flux. That it, the concept that they believed in had underpinned their entire security understanding up until really last month is gone, and they have to figure out where to go. And it's like, is the question that we need to go back to the peace process that we've totally abandoned for decades? Is a question that we need to be harsher? We can we keep what Netanyahu is doing if we're just if we just have smarter people in charge? Uh, it's a lot of fundamental questions about like the very basics of their policy are like very much undecided now and uh it like really it's i mean i don't it's kind of a cliche but they really are at a turning point where where the public decides now will determine what their next concept will be and we'll see if that ends up being as a ends up being a failure or success although really the only avenue here that we've uh seen that the only way that this could possibly work out is they need to come to a long-term settlement they cannot have security and the occupation at the same time. These attacks have completely proven that. I was going to say, too, uh, just for my listeners that may not be history buffs, why do you compare um, October 7th to the Tet Offensive? 
Uh, that was um, first off. That was an imperialist war. It was not a war of, of necessity. It was a war of choice, uh, and it was understood that way. Uh, this was also a war that they, the imperialist power thought that they were winning, and uh, was very confident there was some kind of either light at the end of the tunnel or that it was being managed successfully. And all of that gets proven to not be the case very dramatically, and it leaves this. Um, the country in question uh, in this state of political turmoil where a lot about the future is going to be determined in a very short span of time. In regards to the October 7th attack, a lot has been made of, uh, you know, the, the relationship between Israel and Hamas before the attack, you know, uh, people like Smotrich, or the Ben, um, not Ben Giver, uh, Netanyahu, uh, saying, you know, this is the way we can keep the two state solution from ever happening. Yeah, is- yeah. That was their policy. Like, it's, um, that's basically just like what I said. Uh, this entire state of affairs, including the dominance of Hamas in the West Bank, was deliberately constructed by them. It was done so, like, consciously. It wasn't. In, in like- a way, they were allowing Hamas to be the prison guards and, yeah, you know, giving that- uh, work permit programs. So, I mean, Israel had to work with the mosque, do the work. Stuff, yeah, but- they thought that this was the best way from the managing. It's not like they suddenly have to deal with a new situation that like they didn't realize before. It's that um, their previous conception of how things were um, has uh, like their policy has failed. It's not like they have to respond like to some new set of circumstances. It's that they have to create. I mean, it's not like this like came out of the blue, like it was 9-11 style incident or the whole landscape has totally changed. They knew what the situation was. They knew what, like, everything that was happening. Uh, it's like if the U.S. was like, or like if they had control over all the actors in this situation here, and it just turned out a different way than they expected. So they're not dealing with anything they don't know. It's not like they suddenly realize that Hamas hates them and wants to, like, kill Jewish people or, like, expel Israel or whatever they want to do. It's not, like, a new thing to them if the, that they're saying. It's not that they didn't realize that these people were violent militants. They knew that before. They just thought they could manage it. And now it why it's kind of a farce is um, they're pretending like this is some kind of new development that they just have to respond to. It's not. It's a state of affairs they created. And the only way they can do they can solve this is by fundamentally reimagining and waking up and growing up to the reality of the situation, which is that this was never a sustainable way of doing things. Real quick, uh I didn't know this until reading your article about uh, the October 7th event that, uh, you know, Israel's domestic intelligence service, Shin Bet, was warning that the settlement expansion was putting, you know, the country's security at risk. Yeah. Uh, And I guess Netanyahu's party, the Likud, attacked Shin Bet for this, saying they've been infected with the ideology of the left and infiltrated by the deep state. They said they went woke. Like it, that was, they were just not treating this with any seriousness at all. They had like, they thought that they just had this whole issue solved. It's not like that nobody even warned them. They, um, it's just, um, it was, uh, it's, uh, they're going to have to get a lot more serious very quickly. Are they going to, um, totally retreat into even more delusions and whether they, um, actually wake up to the undeniable reality or if they continue to pretend that they, um, have this all under control and they can just do whatever they want uh that will determine the 
long-term kind of future of the conflict. And the U.S. can play an incredibly large role here, uh, which the Biden administration has so far refused to do. What role could the U.S. play? Like how, like exactly what Bush did, pressuring Israel using our leverage. Like it's been done before, which is kind of my point with that article. Do you think that things will change uh, once Netanyahu is gone? Or, you know, I I think the immediate successor, if I was going to bet on anyone, would be Benny Gantz. Uh, Do do you think things will change if Benny Gantz uh, gets a more prominent role? Well, he is kind of like an archetypical version of just this kind of a like more competent kind of oppressor like this. He's only running based on uh, the way things are being done, not the actual strategy or his promise is that he could manage this kind of state of affairs more competently than Netanyahu has. And that is a very comforting lie to Israelis that they can just keep up this kind of best of all worlds, have your cake and eat it too situation that they had prior to the attacks, just by having somebody there who's not a criminal and has security experience and uh, cares more about security than certain ideological goals. And that it will probably carry today. Polling says that that's a very popular stance, but it is a lie and it's going to fail eventually. And uh, um, whether it's by hook or by crook or the U.S. forces them to come to their senses or they just can't deny it any longer that this whole process is a complete catastrophe. Someday they will have to own up because you can't hide from reality forever. Before we close out, one thing I wanted to run by you was, uh, so my view is the only way this finally ends, you know, the, the, this issue, this constant cycle that we see with Israel, Palestine is that there needs to be a political solution. Uh, there needs to be a Palestinian state. Um, people can argue, well, yeah, but the other thing is a lot of people will say to me, well, it could end in the worst possible way, which is a a genocide, but I don't even think that is, I think that's dumb. I don't think Israel can complete a genocide of, you know, over 5 million people. It's it's unfeasible. And in a way, I think, you know, the far right in Israel lives in a fantasy world. And I, I was wondering if you agree with that, because I just think they're kicking the can down the road no matter what they do yeah. uh, outside of finding a political solution. Yeah, the apocalyptic scenario is really like um, it's scary because it's what some people want. But uh, it does feel like something that would be kind of unfeasible. The scarier thing is that it's this kind of slow motion kind of process of dispossession we're really kind of living in the worst case scenario right now, assuming that like a outright genocide is impossible where um, uh, they just had this perpetual like kind of uh, occupation and dispossession and uh, never like any kind of long-term kind of possibility of a real solution there. And that kind of situation had kind of shattered. So in a very, uh, now, uh, so like in a, a lot of ways, there really is nowhere to go but up. I just wanted to add to that. In some ways, I think, and other people have described it this way, but I'm not the first, but in a way, the policies that we've seen from Netanyahu over the past decade, at least, uh, basically constitute what one could call um, a one-state reality, a de facto one-state reality, and one in which you know people complain about that term from the river to the sea. Well, under Netanyahu's policies, what we have right now is a de facto policy of Palestine- will be unfree from the river to the sea palestine will be unfree that's yeah it was israeli dominance um across what they term greater israel from the jordan river to the mediterranean sea that is um 
what their idea was. And they're really, for a while, look, there was no way out of that because they looked like they had the security situation dealt with. Diplomatic opportunities were there. The U.S. was supporting them no matter what. That put, they kind of flew too close to the sun a little bit with them, I think, the Hamas and the Bowman, because, uh, I mean, you can say what they could have done to maybe get that to work. But I think uh, that kind of long-term kind of uh, process of trying to keep Palestine split up for like the kind of benefit of making negotiations harder has obviously backfired. In terms of uh, the polling that you're looking at and just where you see the trends going, because you're you're very good at noticing trends, um, where do you see, I, I guess, the future headed for the Israel-Palestine issue and U.S. foreign policy's relationship to it? Uh, well, um, I think that um, people are going to be belatedly forced in the past positions that uh, were true back then and are true now, kind of like the tepid kind of two-state solution stuff. There's really no way around it. Um, I think that like the public here, the longer this kind of goes on, the more they'll be kind of forced to ask, like, what's our end game here? Even now, the Biden administration can't really answer that very succinctly. And Israel, um, I don't expect them to really be electing anybody who, um, like, the left wing won't see a resurgence there. Uh, but, like, they probably plan on electing more pragmatic people than people who are just totally ideologically obsessed with, like, Netanyahu. Uh, that might make the situation more manageable, but people shouldn't mistake that for actually, like, a real move towards peace on the Israeli part. Anything else you want to say in closing? And how can my listeners keep up with your work? No, no, nothing in particular. I think we covered pretty much everything I've written about this. Uh, um, I uh, have a Twitter account, Edingermentum, on Twitter, and my website is edingermentum.news, where you can subscribe for all of my work that I've written over the past year uh, since I started writing, uh, all the stuff I've written on Israel more in depth, uh, and I have more stuff I plan to put out soon in the next week or so. But yeah, it, was, it was great talking. I like going over all this stuff with you. Really appreciate it. Thank you again, Josh. Everyone check out Edinger Mentum News. Thanks again, man. Yeah, no problem. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Edinger Mentum. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please support me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallax views and with that being said until next time you've been listening to parallax views with parallax views to parallax views with parallax views the way out is not simply to say don't do it just to prohibit if nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing this like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight. With no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. 
I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.